guys, welcome to the Abe Summer Series, a nine episode series dedicated to energy and recovery. I'm your host, Paula Glover, President and CEO of the American Association of Blacks and Energy. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. For all things Abe, visit us at aabe.org and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Today, we have a wonderful conversation that we're going to have and some fantastic panelists that I would love to introduce to you. First, we have Dr. Dean Foreman. Dr. Foreman is API's chief economist specializing in global energy, global business and energy with a PhD in economics from the University of Florida. He came to API from Saudi Aramco strategy and market analysis in Dharan, where he managed short-term market monitoring and the long-term oil demand outlook. Dr. Foreman has more than 20 years of industry experience in corporate strategic planning, market analysis and forecasting, finance and risk management at ExxonMobil, Talisman Energy, and Sasol North America. Please welcome Dr. Dean Foreman. Our next speaker is Mr. Bryden Ross. He is Vice President, State Affairs, Consumer Energy Alliance. Before joining CEA, he served as Director of Energy and Environmental Policy for the Council of State Governments and as the Interim Executive Director of the Association of Air Pollution Control Agencies. Mr. Ross has worked in the private sector as a Director of Government Relations for the Association of Oil Pipelines in Washington, D.C., and for nearly 10 years was a senior staff person in the U.S. Senate, specializing in energy and environmental issues for U.S. Senators George Lemure and Mel Martinez of Florida and Elizabeth Dole of North Carolina. And our moderator, Ms. Tanae Dolphin. Ms. Dolphin is Director for Business Diversity and Opportunity for the City of Birmingham, Alabama, where she has been tasked to build the city's small business infrastructure. In her position, she leads cross-coordination with city agencies to build an inclusive procurement program, manage national partnerships with National League of Cities, Bloomberg Harvard City Initiative, and Cities for Financial Empowerment to Build Capacity. Prior to her tenure as director, she served as Chief of Staff for the U.S. Economic Development Administration, U.S. Department of Commerce, and also served as Chief of Staff and Interim Director in the Executive Office of the Mayor of the District of Columbia. Ms. Dolphin also served as Director of Operations and Chief of Staff for the 2006 Fenty Mayoral Campaign and Transition Team. Earlier in her career, she led as Director of Special Projects for the Democratic National Committee. We have three fantastic panelists today. Um, we are so happy to have all of you and look forward to a great discussion. Thank you, Paula. Uh, and thank you uh, to the panelists for being here. I'm excited to have this conversation today. Um, and we're gonna just jump right into it because uh, we wanna honor everybody's time and also get to as many um, attendee questions as possible. So with that, let's begin. To both of my panelists, uh, and, and I'm going to be a little friendly, Dean and, and Bryden, um, what has been the impact of COVID-19 on global trade? Bryden? Uh, sure, yeah. You know, I, I think Dean could certainly give you a commas point of view. I can tell you from CEA's perspective, um, it's had a, a gigantic impact. And so our association has about 300 members across the country and we actually intersect almost across the entire gambit of the of the energy supply chain uh, from you know, upstream and downstream 
energy uh, producers, uh, pipeline companies, to large manufacturers. Our board members include folks like Caterpillar, Ecore Steel, um, GE, and others. It's had a gigantic impact. So, I mean, you're looking at a $90 trillion global trade uh, economy. Uh, depending on whose forecast you look at, you know, OECD numbers are, are looking at, you know, probably eight or nine percent drop globally in economic growth. Um, that's huge. So I, I don't think there's any way to, to undercount kind of what we're looking at. I, I would, you know, Dean could probably put a finer point on it, but probably the biggest impact of global trade since the Great Depression, really. Yeah. Dean? That's absolutely right. The World Trade Organization recently estimated that for the second quarter of this year, that global trade is likely to be down almost 19% year on year. So this really is a tectonic shift. And the question is, where do we go from here? Because it's one thing to focus in the Hindview mirror. Going forward, the consensus expectations with $9 trillion and going of stimulus being pumped into the global economy, as Bryden said, as the economy goes as trade goes, and frankly, as energy goes, all hand in hand, uh, there's an expectation that there's going to be a bounce from here. The question is how fast and how large. Wow. Well, since the COVID-19 pandemic, some have suggested that U.S. reliance on foreign goods during the current crisis reveals just how important it is that the U.S. bring critical assets back to shore. Is the current crisis a rationale to decrease international trade? Or is it a case for better preparedness, such as stockpiling? Or is better preparedness essentially reshoring? Let's start with Dean on this one. So I want to give a thoughtful answer along a couple of lines, because there's some industries where better preparedness or more stocks might make perfect sense. If you're in the electronics industry and you're sensitive to places where you may not be able to get critical components, by all means. In the energy industry, and you know, API, we're the we're representing some 600 oil, gas, equipment services companies throughout the entire energy value chain. You know, a lot of this is capital intensive and it's hard to shift on a dime. It takes time. And let's keep in mind the cause and effect here. The pandemic mm -hmm. is, is huge, but the main thing we're seeing in terms of our trade balance as a country is economic rationality of a really strong U.S. dollar. As we've gone through this crisis, the U.S. dollar spiked to an all-time high on an exchange trade value versus all other currencies on a, on a weighted basis, if you're looking at the way the Federal Reserve manages that. So today, the short answer there is that if the dollar is more valuable, you expect people to buy imported goods because it's relatively less expensive to do so. So if you want to incentivize bringing a lot of the supply chain and and reshoring a lot of things, that's working against the strength of the dollar here. So there are some economic incentives that have to be sorted. Yeah, no, Tanae, that, that's, um, that's a really, that, that question's got a lot of, lots of impact when you think about it. I, I would say a lot of it really, as, as Dean says, it really depends on kind of your perspective from an industry. Uh -huh. uh, it, it, I would say overall, it's always hard to kind of peg where our members are because they're all over the place in terms of kind of where manufacturing folks are, if you have a global footprint or not. I would say it's going to be a combination of almost all of those, not to, to cop out, but I think it would, I think clearly where, where folks have seen kind of laid bare is the just-in-time sort of delivery aspect of everything in our economy. Um, it, you, the idea that you could hyper-efficiency everything um, and not have a black swan sort of event um, that you, you couldn't get around. I mean, I think there's going to be some rethinking about that. 
Um, you know, one, I think obviously you, you, China comes to mind for a lot of folks. So probably kind of where the administration, I think, and maybe even going forward, depending on who, who the, the down the road might be, um, looking at probably key sectors of an industry. I don't necessarily see that, you know, we're going to start reshoring, like, you know, let's say all our textile manufacturing back here for socks and t-shirts, those sort of things. Uh, but like for pharmaceuticals, um, you know, key uh, components for, you know, energy industry and the like, I, I think, yeah, that makes some more sense to think more about stockpiling um, and keeping, you know, kind of better tabs on kind of where our reserves are. And then if it makes more sense to bring some of that back, because if your equipment and your needs and your goods are sitting on a ship someplace waiting to get into, you know, it, it, into the harbor, you know, from overseas, um, it, it just in time delivery doesn't really help you much anymore. And that's, and so that's why I think people are going to be rethinking that, that business strategy. So it's almost an industry by industry question. Um, and I, and I get that. Um, let's see, can you, can you expound a little on that? I, I think, you know, Brian, you just, you, you really just sort of began to, to dissect which industries uh, reshoring might help versus stockpiling. Um, but, but is there a way to elaborate on that? And I think especially for um, this audience, I, I know a lot of it is, is energy, but I would imagine there's a great deal of uh, the supply chain connected to this. Um, any, any way to expound and get a little granular on that, sure. Dean or, yeah. or Bryden? I, I think probably the, the one thing that comes to mind the most to me that woke up a lot of people's eyes We'll start with hand sanitizer, for example. Um, when there was a huge run on hand sanitizer in this country, uh, getting people to think about, you know, one, where does that come from? And, and what is our hand sanitizer made out of? And a lot of what we do at CA from, from our perspective is taking really complex issues and trying to distill them down for folks in the general public to understand. And, and how many people didn't, re didn't know um, that, you know, the oil and gas industry, for example, plays a huge component in making hand sanitizer. And so uh, I think where you saw from, from people when you would go to a grocery store and you're, you're out of it, you would see people think, okay, where does this come from and how does this get made? And, and so I think it's kind of laid bare some of those real world supply chain issues that thought, okay, hey, you know, maybe now I know local distilleries, I live in Kentucky, we're getting in on the uh, supply chain uh, business when it came to hand sanitizer. So I think it got people thinking about that uh, more than anything else in, I, in, in my lifetime, anyway, in terms of, of how that kind of lays bare. So I think that, that's a really localized issue, but I think that's, for I mean, that, that's one that's a great example. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I'll elaborate really from uh, my strength in, in energy and focus on the oil and gas supply chains. And we really have two flavors of looking across North American trade versus international trade. And both in terms of the intermediate inputs and then the final products as a whole. When we talk about inputs into the process, be it steel, be it valves, be it the, the components that make things go, or just crude oil, for example, uh, people don't realize that the way our refining industry is really structured in the US, even if we are a net exporter and are technically energy independent, and today we're not, but we were a short time ago, even in that basis, we're still gonna import an awful lot of crude oil at the same time as we're exporting because of the quality and the geographic location of those products. So 
so much of our oil and product trades with Canada and Mexico, those are vital trading partners. The replacement for NAFTA and the US-Mexico-Canada agreement has quietly been really important to our industry. And that reinforces an ongoing momentum and continuity in trade and investment that otherwise isn't really making the headlines because it's not as exciting, but it's actually a lot more important to this core industry than even the China trade issue. The China trade issue that does make the headlines is really about the growth potential into the biggest growth markets in the world or the, the economies that are expected to expand the most. And we continue to have tensions there on multiple fronts, as you see playing out in the daily headlines, where that's going to go in fits and starts. We have big commitments for buying energy and other manufactured goods uh, you know, by China to the tune of more than $200 billion over the next year and three quarters. But we'll see how far that goes. And as we've seen big price changes recently, the volumetric ability to meet those export commitments by China is then drawn into question. So it's really about going directionally in the, in the right direction of having trade relationships that continue to uh, reinforce this as a growth concept interdependence that we have both across North America and globally. And all of this should help uh, basically reinforce the supply chains and the growth of the industry and the economy as a whole. Thanks. Thank you for that. All right. From an, ener an energy industry perspective, how has the uh, pandemic impacted we kind of talked about this, the infrastructure supply chain. Let's, let's move on to another question because I think we just really talked about that supply chain one. Uh, Bryden, mm -hmm. uh, in May of this year, when we talk about this trade piece, the White House issued an executive order which would remove from the bulk power system supply chain foreign adversary participation. How dependent is the U.S. bulk power system on identified foreign adversaries? And what do you see as the overall goal of this executive order? Yeah, um, you know, one, I, I think you could probably distill that those lists, when we say adversaries, probably down to one in terms of where we're actually getting the, you know, the types of sophisticated equipment that we need um, in the bulk power system, and that's China. Um, you know, that's, and, and I think it's really, this particular executive order is, I think it's probably part and parcel to a larger trade discussion in general with China. Um, and I think what it came down to, and you've seen it, you know, in our telecom industries as well with state-owned corporations like Huawei and others, uh, especially in the 5G space, um, there's a concern really with state-backed entities in China, um, how, much, how, how much of a real firewall is that between the company and the government and its intentions here in this country? or in global trade or intellectual property issues and the like. You, you could almost have your entire summer webinar series about um, these issues. They're, they're highly complex and can be controversial. Um, I would say yes, you know, we, we don't have as, we, we have a domestic manufacturing capability for a lot of this infrastructure, but a lot of it we have to get from China. And so the concern is really not so much on, you know, a transformer um, necessarily having some sort of um, switch in it that's designed to malfunction or something along those lines. It's really like how safe are those digital controls and monitors um, to outside penetration, to monitoring and the like. And so um, I know now you know, the industry has from the bulk power side and the utility side has been very involved in this issue. Um, I would say this isn't something that they just woke up and thought about during COVID. 
Uh, cyber has been a huge issue for the industry with FERC and with NERC for years. Um, mm -hmm. I think that this particular set of circumstances kind of brought a lot of this to bear for people for the first time. It got out of the wonk side and now it got into the real world where people are really thinking about, you know, we had a black swan event. What happens if we get that in our bulk power delivery system? What would that mean for our economy? So I think there's still, you know, there, there's still some more coordination that's going on now uh, with industry and in to DOE and others. Uh, so I have a comment there, I believe it's due in August. Um, but yeah, no, the administration is, is looking at uh, you know, some, pretty, some pretty tough standards. Yeah, I think one thing out of that, uh, I think that's you know, been a positive is, is part of that order too. It's not so much you know, the prohibitions that are put on, on, on Chinese um, goods as well in the bulk power system, but sharing intelligence. I think that has been another issue that I think you could speak of before where a lot of this was really, um, you didn't get a lot of actionable information from the administration and others for a long time on what was happening from a cyber standpoint. And this order talks about sharing that information with folks in the utility side. So I know there's gonna be a lot of close coordination that's gonna go on there, uh, but it's gonna be an ongoing process for sure. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, let's move on. Um, both of you again, let me, let me ask uh, Dean. As we look at the gas and oil sectors of energy industry over the last eight plus years, the U.S. has become less dependent on foreign energy resources to a degree, as we talked about. Um, we know that it's a reciprocal relationship, but, but nearly energy independent. Has COVID-19 and the supply chain debate negatively impacted that independence? Well, Talk just a little bit before. Just going by the numbers, you know, we were a net exporter for the first time of oil in some 60 years last September, and total energy consequently as a result of that. We've been an exporter of natural gas on a net basis for several years, um, you know, and for coal as well. But oil has really been the crux or the pivotal change there. And as of June, by API's estimates, and we'll come out with our monthly statistical report tomorrow, the latest data would show on a monthly basis that we were a net importer for the month of about 1.2 million barrels per day. So it is a shift and it's a real cost. Now, let's hope, it, let's hope the strength of the industry is something that keeps this in bounds. The, the U.S. Energy Information Administration's current outlook, though, is that U.S. oil and gas production will continue to decline from here over the next year or so. That's a big shift from the way it looked coming into the year with a fair amount of momentum. Drilling activity, which had gotten increasingly productive, we were producing more and more with fewer rigs running and, and wells being drilled. But now with this environment, what we're seeing is lower demand and the supply side responding to the lower demand and prices as it goes. So there is a real cost of going through the pandemic that's come with this. There's a real cost in terms of the investment dollars that are now flowing through the economy. And there's a stick to of the capacity to produce going forward that is then supported by these trade relationships. And you know, as we look at, um, just from a supply chain perspective, the embedded fact of the fact that we need that North American trade and from a growth concept to continue to grow the energy revolution as we have over the last eight to 10 years, it's an export driven concept at this standpoint because the US from a fuels perspective, if you think about our lifestyles and the way things are, is largely a saturated market. We're growing, but we're not growing 
in leaps and bounds the way developing Asia, for example, has been. So getting, it's a combination of developing resources, having infrastructure in place to support both domestic and export provision, having the logistics in place from a marine and other standpoint to be able to deliver those things and having the market access with those trustful trade relationships that, that works. It takes the whole gamut to make it work. And that's where the growth concept really comes from for us. Do you think we're ready for that growth? I think- I think absolutely the industry has been well prepared for that growth, but we've been dealt a setback here by COVID-19 that's affecting uh, both in the first quarter, we would have estimated we have a database of large capital projects and there's a backlog in the US of some $344 billion worth of large capital projects. And to keep that in perspective, these are the kinds of each being multi-billion dollar projects like refinery expansions, export facilities for liquefied natural gas, new pipelines, it, it, lots of different large capital projects. The likes have not been seen in a whole generation in the United States. So this is transformational in terms of taking the technology-driven development we've seen in terms of energy resources coming and now turning this into an export concept that's really becoming a preferred provider of energy to the rest of the world and doing it in a really efficient and environmentally responsible way that's better than most other places across the globe. But now much of that, 190 billion of that 344 billion is liquefied natural gas projects. And with that market in flux right now, many of those projects are being delayed or placed on hold. This, these are substantial amounts of investment and dollars that go right to the bottom line of our GDP growth. They particularly affect some regions more than others, if you're a producing or exporting region across the Gulf Coast, especially if you're Ohio, Pennsylvania, across the Midwest, where you've got the infrastructure going through and serving those markets. If you're Ohio and Pennsylvania looking at a new ethane cracker and derivatives complex, for example, getting those markets up and running is absolutely transformational because they haven't had that kind of investment, again, more than 20, 30 years, a whole generation. So it, I think it's a really important time and the opportunity is still there, but we have to do some triage to kind of get things back on course and make sure the incentives are in place for that to, to stay the course. Biden? Yeah, no, uh, I think Dean hit on a lot of, yeah, a lot of key, key topics, especially, you know, I, I think the chemical industry for one is a great example. He just mentioned the, the cracker facility in Western Pennsylvania that, is transformational. You know, I, in terms of what you've seen in this country, uh, you're looking at over $200 billion really in projects as a result of, of the energy renaissance we've seen in the country. Um, yeah, those are largely export driven markets. I think, yes, we've got a, we've got a short term issue with COVID. Uh, and when I mean in terms of looking at the globe, year, two years sort of, of sort of impact when you think about it. But, you know, the, the middle class is still going to grow in India. That's still going to happen. Uh, they are going to want lifestyles that we have here in this country. You're going to see that across the developing world. You know, and so I, I think what we have seen really is is more of a a pause uh, when fuel demand comes back. I think you'll see you know you, there'll be a lot of consolidation. I think unfortunately a, across the different uh, supply chain issues, unfortunately, but some of that can come back, and we think relatively quickly when fuel demand picks up. It, that's just my own personal perspective. 
uh, there was a great story. That's a great, there was an insightful story, I'd say, in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend that talked about the Permian Basin, for example, has been one of those areas out in West Texas and New Mexico that was just gangbusters on growth and production, everything else that was happening. Um, you had barbers there making 180 grand a year um, because of the incredible, you know, just exponential growth that was happening in cities and towns. Um, you know, what's happened now is, you know, now, you know, the barbershops closed, the barbecue restaurants closed, um, you know, your frac sand operators or, you know, uh, High Crush, one of the largest frac sand operators in the country, you know, they filed for bankruptcy. You know, there, there's certainly going to be a lot of negative impacts and harm, but I think we've, we've got so much infrastructure in this country and stuff that was ready to go. I don't think those dynamics are going to change over the long term. I think, you know, one thing I always try to impress upon people kind of had a really high level idea is that energy security is not so much, you know, barrels of oil or TCF or gas or whatever you have. It's the ability to get to the markets where people need it. And I don't know of any other country other than ours that's better suited to do that. And then it, it, from a macro standpoint, from our port facilities, you know, we're, we're bi-coastal, we're internationally integrated with Canada and Mexico. I mean, th that's not going away. Um, so that's, you know, in the midst of kind of all the gloom and doom, I know that we've got going on and the layoffs and the and I think kind of the bad thing in the energy industry, I think of, of other sectors in this country, the energy industry and its employees and folks on this call are probably better positioned over the long term to, to get back to normal quicker than I think just about any other sector in our economy. Well, with that, I'm gonna go to some um, uh, question from an attendee um, and, and, I, and I've got to hopefully someone's going to connect to that about the, the timeline and the how. Um, but has the COVID-19 impact been better or worse for some countries? So we've talked about uh, the U.S., but can you, can you talk about the impact maybe to another country where it's been, you know, it, that country's fared really well or that it's had a significant impact? Uh, let's start with Bryden. Sure. You know, I, I think... You know, from a geopolitical standpoint, you saw the standoff, and I think Dean can speak this better than I could, you know, with OPEC and, and the U.S. You, I think a lot of that, you know, while it certainly had significant impacts in fuel, in fuel markets and the like, I think in many respects, you can look at it as almost as a sign of desperation for some of these countries that are so resource-driven, um, like Saudi Arabia and, and others are trying to gain market share because they see what we can do here in this country. Um, that to me is sort of a last gasp of OPEC. That's just, again, my opinion there uh, to try and steal a little bit of short-term market share because so much of their, of their bottom line is based off the price of oil. Um, and so I think countries that are so, so driven by you know, a commodity like that certainly has, um, I think, more to lose over the long term in, in, in these sort of discussions. Uh, I think you know, other countries, again, that are commodity export driven, like Brazil and others, um, especially when people aren't buying as many agriculture goods or you're not growing. It's another country I think that's probably been particularly hard hit with what's been happening. There's been other currency and political issues that are going on there. Um, you know, at, at the, right now, I guess you could say the one country that's really had it first and then it technically has come back the quickest is China, um, mm -hmm. if you're really looking at it from a global economic standpoint. Um, and so I, I think from a lot of people in the U.S. they say, well, gosh, that means, you know, um, you, we need to we need to pay even more particular attention to what they're doing. Um, but I, I would say, if you're looking at sort of the the countries to to examine in terms of kind of who are the short term uh, folks that have, been, have taken on the chin the most and who 
are, are kind of limited in growth and opportunities. That that's, would be my perspective. Because I think, if, frankly, your resource intensive countries, then that's all they do. They're not diversified like our economies really are going to be kind of limited in the future where they can go. Thank you. Dean, do you want to add to that? I think Brian's really on point there. I'd, I'd add that you've got a very differentiated set of responses across the world where your major um, developed economies in terms of consuming economies, Europe's been hit hard, the US has hit hard, um, Japan, South Korea hit hard. So you know, for, as consumers, that, that's an issue. And when you shut down international trade, international transport, there's a double effect or double whammy that goes with that. Then it, it, of the classes of countries that have kind of, or groups of countries that have responded somewhat differently, you know, the more insular small ones, Scandinavian countries, New Zealand, you know, where they can frankly be a little more self-sufficient, shut down and recover, they've been able to, to kind of weather the storm relatively better than others. Among big countries, you know, China has stood out for its response of getting its industrial production back basically to pre-crisis levels. But the rest of developing Asia, which normally rides on the coattails of China in terms of production because of trade and exports with those trade volumes still being down, China's growth is still not anticipated to be you know, even close to what it has been reporting in recent years as trend growth. So instead of 6%, it's estimated by the consensus to be you know, in the 1% or 2% range for this year, which is still positive, but not, not healthy enough to really be anything to brag about for China. And, as we look forward now, you know, Brazil, as Bryden mentioned, has really hit hard. The BRICS, Russia, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, all hit hard. And then there is this financial aspect that we made reference to earlier about the foreign uh, currency exchange rates. If you were trying to compare the way Russia has weathered this compared with Saudi Arabia, Russia with its exchange rate flexibility, it's been painful, but they've been ever able uh, to weather the storm somewhat better than a Saudi Arabia, for example, with a fixed currency versus the US dollar, which is heavily reliant now on international debt to kind of uh, tide its way through this tough time. So th there are multiple degrees of freedom in the way this is playing out. There is no one size fits all. And we really have to look at the broader economic trend and whether it's going to lift all boats in terms of trade to continue to, to bring us back in here. The hope is that yeah, especially from an energy perspective, we have so many discussions around supply side things, the focus on OPEC, the price war that emerged between uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia, and for all, and even specific states from Texas to Oklahoma to North Dakota and even Arkansas talking about prorating or limiting the amount of oil and gas production in the state to try to rebalance you know, the, the supply demand. Uh, for oil and natural gas in the U.S. It, these have been unprecedented debates that have focused so much on supply when it's fundamentally a demand-driven problem. And we need to keep that in mind that it's really getting the economy to, back on track and looking at the demand side of things for both the U.S. and the global economy. Excuse me. <clears throat> Thank you. <clears throat> I'm sorry. What are the impacts of reshoring, if any, on the, uh, the energy industry? Let's start with Dean. Well, you know, it takes different sources. This isn't pharmaceuticals, for example, where you can have an executive order where you suddenly try to bring back the whole supply chain of critical elements back into the U.S. Historically, we saw 
before the energy revolution, a lot of energy intensive production, fertilizers, uh, chemicals, lots of other things through the value chain that were energy intensive. Steel and aluminum production almost get eviscerated because the, the cost of energy in the US was relatively high. Despite the fact that we had high productivity, the energy costs were a deterrent to those industries. As we've gone through this evolution, we've seen naturally market forces bringing a lot of that back in the last few years, simply because oil and natural gas have been so cost-effective and abundant domestically. So that's been happening. We don't, we don't need an executive order or government intervention to make that happen. We just need enabling policies on the trade front to take advantage, add value at home, and now enable the industry to serve the world. And especially, you know, liquefied natural gas is a perfect example where this is, we look at oil and oil for decades has been a global fungible commodity. Natural gas has really been a very regionally segmented commodity with very different prices across Asia, Europe, compared with North America. And through the last five to 10 years with the energy revolution, we've seen North America become very integrated from the North American gas perspective, the prices being half or less historically than what we've seen in Europe and Asia. As of the second quarter of this year, for the first time in the world's history, we've seen one and two dollar per million BTU natural gas everywhere in the world getting connected by this plethora of supply of liquefied natural gas at the same time that demand's been weak. Now that should sort itself out, but it's really an object lesson in the opportunity of when you want contracts in place with places like Asia out of the US, and if you're going to rely on the United States for a substantial amount of your energy imports as an as a Asian nation, a trusted trade relationship where you're comfortable buying from the US and the companies that represent it, where you have the ability in a non-discriminatory way to participate through the value chain, where you have transparency about the information, where you're not worried about government redirecting or uh, shunting the resource domestically in a, in a time of uh, of crisis or political whim, the fact that you can rely on this partner. These are aspects that have to still be ferreted out as we work through this crisis because the, the emphasis on trade tensions has actually put a lot of clouds in trying to move those projects forward that are above and beyond the basic supply demand balance. So look, we're hopeful and the industry is trying to work this, but it takes a policy environment that's enabling to, again, match with the markets, the infrastructure, and the resource access. You know, I'm going to, when, when I ask one question, <clears throat> if the other person wants to jump in, I want you to just jump in. Um, uh, I kind of, I'm looking at Bryden. Bryden, do you want to add to that, or do you want to sure. start with the you know, I think one, you know, Dean was spot on there in terms of you know, kind of the energy industry providing a lot of opportunities here because of the costs. And I, two things jump out to me there. And I think and there's a, a future aspect too. I was just thinking about that when he was going through it. Back in my staff for days, I remember I was at an energy committee hearing and the CEO of Dow Chemical, Andy Livers at the time, basically told the, the, all the senators there, look, I wouldn't recommend investing another dollar in this country because of the price of natural gas. And you could heard a pin drop in the place. Um, this was in 2006 uh, when we were looking at spot prices at Henry Hub at like 15 bucks. Um, countries like ours don't see that sort of change in terms of sea change in in um, economics. And that, and that to me, and it sounds kind of wonky, 
but it's a huge it's a huge deal when you think about how far we have come since that time because the the cost of the BTU of natural gas was the real reason you weren't building in this country. Um, you, you always talk about yes, labor and everything else around the world. Yes, it's cheap in Asia, but it really was the cost of the feedstock. And because of that, we've seen a huge amount of investment back in the country. Um, you know, Valoric Steel, for example, in Youngstown, Ohio, you know, built a steel mill in Youngstown for the first time in 60 years because of the price of natural gas and where it was located. So I think, it, it, I think from the reshoring perspective, kind of thinking from the energy side, um, where your markets are and where the, the, the feedstock is makes a lot of sense from an investment standpoint. Um, you know, but I, I think you know, those, are, those are things that just came to mind when we're, we're talking here. But, you know, but one thing I think from kind of a, a future aspect, especially in the energy side, from a utility perspective and EVs and others, where we're seeing so much of a trend now in battery storage, uh, we have executive orders uh, worried about um, you know, equipment from, for our bulk power system coming from overseas, which is where we get a lot of it from. Um, thinking about those strategic um, objectives, like how do you want to meet all these mandates and standards that we've seen around the country? Um, how, you know, we, when you think about where, like cobalt is a great example. Just to meet, you know, the, the EV side, I believe World Bank said we're going to need to, you know, triple the amount of cobalt we have in the globe just to meet the EV mandates. That's not any of the battery storage. That's not anything else around the world that uses cobalt. We're just talking about electric vehicles. Um, how are we going to get there? And so much of our, I think our, our incentive programs in this country, especially, are really, are, are really R&D based. And then it's, you know, we want to cut ribbons and dig dirt and build, build a, you know, a factory of some type. And that, those are great. We need to do that. But we haven't really thought about, well, how do you get those rare earths or those, that cobalt here? Because we don't have that much of it. Um, yeah, we've got a few small mines in California that do that. I believe the Chinese own a big chunk of those. Um, those are some big issues that I think we're going to think about um, in terms of future challenges. We're really reshoring, um, you know, from a battery storage perspective from the utility side. I will say that's going to be a huge challenge, not only just in the actual technology to make it cost effective. It's like, where is the feedstock going to come from? And the Chinese control 80% of, of the refined cobalt in the globe. I mean, they, that's, we've got to get serious about some of these issues. And that's, you know, something I think would, a lot smarter people than I am can, are going to be grappling with for a long time. Uh, you and me both. Uh, okay. Um, let's see. The U.S. defense industry consists of both domestic and allied defense investments. What are you seeing in the defense industry in terms of supply chain concerns? Uh, let's start with Brian, to you. Sure, and, and uh, again, I can speak high level here. You, you could get someone from North of Grumman or Raytheon or others uh, could, could go into real, a lot of detail here. Uh, one, there's been several executive orders related to the one we saw the bulk power system when it comes to critical minerals in this country and its impact on defense. That's, one of the reasons I wanted to, to mention that as well, too. I mean, I think the Department here had about 30 critical minerals that are out there um, th that are key for not the U.S. economy, but for our defense industries, for satellites, for magnets, for all sorts of super secret stuff we don't know anything about. Um, you're going to need rare earths for that. So I know uh, the Defense Procurement Act has been one area that I know from a supply chain standpoint has been uh, a key focus of where the administration has wanted to go. Uh, is ferreting out any sort of gaps there um, from, from those vulnerabilities, especially when it comes to, you know, our high-tech um, 
capabilities or weapon systems and the like. Um, the, absolutely, it, it is. It is. I would say the defense component has probably driven about as much of the of this discussion uh, on on reshoring as I, I would say it's probably number two after uh, the pharmaceutical issues. So yeah, it, it, it's a huge, huge component. Dean. Nothing specific to add on defense industry, just from an energy value chain perspective, the fact that I would reinforce actually in response to the last question that technology, especially if we're looking at energy transition issues, we need to realize that technology and innovation have really been the foundation of the changes that we've seen in the US. This tectonic shift since 2006, as Bryden has mentioned, and it, you know, in 2000, seven, eight, nine, ten, when people, when this was really just starting to nascently take off, people didn't understand exactly why it was working. But a decade later, at a molecular level, people really do start to understand why the combination of hydraulic fracturing, 3D imaging, horizontal drilling, and now big data analytics applied so that there's real-time learning and targeting going with it has really tremendously increased the recovery factors. And then when you combine that with the U.S., unique advantages that we have of both infrastructure, markets, mineral rights. This resource of shale, especially shale gas, is abundant almost everywhere globally. You could take the technology from the service companies and go and produce that amount of gas in China, in Indonesia, Colombia, Algeria. Algeria alone could supply all of Europe's gas needs for many decades if just its shale were developed. But it's this combination of above ground factors that the US has that really uniquely positions it to help supply from a security standpoint all that we're talking about here. So technology and innovation, we have this at home and it really is foundation to our national and economic security if we take the opportunity. And some, uh, some interesting comments pop up. Let's go back to a question from um, our attendees, how does the recent OPEC decision to reduce production restrictions uh, affect the supply chain and any opportunity to bring chain elements back on shore? Again, sort of connected to some of the things you guys have talked about before, but I wanted to specifically um, tie in the OPEC decision. Um, Bryden? Yeah, you know, I, I can opine here, but I'll, I'll hand it off to Dean. He, this is his uh, probably expertise here, but um, one, I, I think in, in terms of production agreements, um, I, I think it definitely is sending signals that we're not gonna continue to oversupply the global market up where demands are. And it certainly has cooled things down in terms of uh, sort of the panic issues we had a few, a few weeks ago. You can look at it, futures prices now. I don't think anyone that's in, who's in the upstream business is delighted with $40 barrel oil, but uh, certainly better than kind of where we were in April. Dean, I'll defer to you on that one. <laughs> The market's response is really, I think, the most insightful thing here, and that's that oil's actually gone up and uh, oil stocks have done well since the OPEC decision, despite the fact that OPEC is reducing its cuts. So April was widely expected to be the very worst uh, downside point of the, of the pandemic. We've seen tremendous recovery in U.S. and global demand as states, U.S. states and countries have begun reopening their economies in a gradual way. Uh, in terms of just the U.S. numbers and what we see if, as we look at the last weekly data, 80 to 90 percent of the, the rebound that we're seeing in petroleum demand has been driven by gasoline, not jet fuel, not diesel fuel. That's interesting because 
with the pandemic, jet fuel is having a more protracted impact here. Diesel didn't go down as much to start, but isn't bouncing back. And people forget that, frankly, industrial activity was really soft even before the onset of the crisis. So that there was a softening there to go with it. But gasoline, as people are now shifting away from flying, away from public transit, but yet they need to commute, they need to shop. And we're now in the midst of summer driving season in the Northern Hemisphere. There are a lot of reasons why that goes hand in hand with the economy being open. So look, there are reasons for optimism there. I, th I think as this continues to play out, watch this space, but it provides, even if OPEC is easing, they're just meeting the headroom that the economy is already providing because there's a fundamental need for that fuel. All right. Um, trying to, let me go with this one. Um, what is the impact on renewables of COVID-19? Uh, let's start with Dean on that one. So you know, renewables, though, I mean, there's a biofuels aspect that competes in the gasoline pool and goes hand in hand. So you know, ethanol was hurt badly with gasoline demand going down. As that recovers, that helps on the biofuel side. When we talk mainly about renewables, the thing that most comes to mind is competition in the power sector, right? And we have a lot of state mandates. We see competition head to head between coal, wind, solar, natural gas, and nuclear. So all, you know, all of them compete for market share. And EIA's uh, both actual data and projections for this year show that natural gas has earned at these really unprecedented low natural gas prices and almost 39% market share this year in US power generation. This is further than EIA thought it would penetrate into the power generation market in the US. And it's, Frankly, it's not about building new plants here. It's just on a dispatch basis, the fact that it flat out is more economic to burn the natural gas, the clean natural gas, than it is to, to use coal, which is relatively more expensive at that price point. Renewables with the intermittency, you know, you're going to use the renewables as much as you can if you've got the investment, but then you have to do the point forward comparison of what you want to invest in. And what we see over the last decade is that states that have put in relatively have gained more market share for wind and solar vis-a-vis -vis natural gas at the same time as gas prices have come down through this energy revolution have they paid for it they're seeing higher retail prices on average in those states as a result of it the question is now going forward what's the trend and how economic is it and the technology continues to evolve bryden made reference to battery costs coming down they come down for both solar pv panels as well as uh, it, the effectiveness of, of wind generation as well. You have all of those, there's a cost element, there's a security element, there's a uh, penetration element where in the last decade we've gone say from 10 or 10 to 20%, depends on the state, 10, 20, 30% renewables penetration in various states. But now if you wanna go per a lot of state mandates and energy transition issues out in the coming decades to go up to 40, 50 or more in California vision of 100% renewables, your costs to interconnect grids for storage solutions, 
stabilization of that grid to deal with the intermittency, the costs literally go up exponentially. And even in the end game for battery costs coming down are expected to be an order of magnitude or more, more expensive than natural gas. So you end up with some real cost effectiveness issues where if we were comparing just from a household bottom line perspective, take the Bureau of Labor Statistics Consumer Expenditure Survey, go back a decade, 2008 till now, you would see that household energy costs, including electricity, motor fuels, everything, are down about 13% over that period. Well, food's up in the mid 20% range. Um, education's up like 50%. Healthcare's up 60 to 70%. So it really is these lower energy costs that have helped free up disposable income so that US households, frankly, can make ends meet and afford these things that have been going up. We need to keep a mind on that. And if the electricity rates end up going up as a result of trying to push these issues too far too fast, you're going to see a consumer backlash on top of the crisis period that we're already going through. So we're mindful of all of the touch points that go with this, including the fact that the biggest environmental progress that we've had in bringing down carbon dioxide emissions in the power sector in the US have almost exclusively been driven by wind, solar, and predominantly natural gas with that 39% share now displacing coal. So how far we can go in continuing that progress, bringing emissions down at the same time as we have the economic benefits and the economic, excuse me, the environmental benefits and the economic benefits that go with low cost energy and all the economic growth that then can build off of that. These are the key questions and it really does require uh, a collaboration between federal and various state regulatory agencies, thinking about their resource planning, thinking about how their grids fit with others within neighboring states and regions, and thinking about how the technology is likely to evolve, because these are not easy issues to answer, and it really does require long-term thoughtful planning. Any suggestions for the federal government on that? Eyes wide open. You know, really keep in mind, when we go back to the China issue and some of these trade issues that we've been talking about, and this also hits on Bryden's point, it's, it's not just rare earth minerals, it's thinking about if you were taking like, let's say solar PV uh, voltaic, uh, photovoltaic panel costs have come down. You can make them in the US, but since January 18, they've been subject to a 30% import tariff on, under section 301. Um, China keeps unloading them cheaper and cheaper. It's not that that technology has improved that much since 2018. It's that between a less expensive currency and frankly, just giving it away, it's almost dumping. So th those debates about if you're going to increase your dependence on Chinese panels, and let's say I, I can tell you I went and testified recently in one state that was looking in particular at a couple hundred million dollar investment into a large solar farm. And you know, it looks great to say you're going to get a couple hundred million dollars of investment, but then you have to say, well, how much of this is local or domestic content? And if a lot of it ends up being just imported cheap Chinese panels, you may get some energy, but the value add, that value that we capture at home with good jobs, the oil and gas industry jobs pay twice the national average on average when we're looking at especially upstream exploration development jobs. If you're just installing a wind farm or a, sol or a solar farm, you get a very different kind of job and it doesn't last as long. So these, there are workforce labor and development issues. Um, the way we 
touch and integrate and talk with agribusiness, with labor, that's where the federal government also can collaborate in connecting these dots and thinking about a holistic energy policy, a cohesive one that really ties together those pieces. I want to talk about the Green Bank initiative connected to that, but I want Bryden to have an opportunity to answer the question first. Sure, you know, and, and I'll, I'll try to be succinct. I know it's hard for me to do, um, but All right, I think we've got one, time. Right. From the renewable standpoint, um, you know, I think there's been no doubt that with COVID, it's had a you know, direct impact in terms of job losses that we've seen there. I mean, you could say that almost with any sector, but the renewable industry especially saw some pretty significant job losses. I know it's been a big component of, of a lot of the advocacy work that's been going on the Hill with recovery efforts and the like is, um, is looking at those components of, of terms of assistance and help. Um, despite some of those negative you know, numbers, installations are up. I mean, you're noticing that with solar and with wind. Um, you know, even with the, the trade duties, you know, we've still seen installations go up a, a, after that as well. Uh, you know, I think, um, you, you know, Dean hit it really, I think the one that's really taken on the chin the most in terms of if you're looking at a generation standard is you live in coal. And that's where a lot of your, your coal plants are getting retired much earlier than expected in many states. A lot of that's been regulatory and market driven too. Um, but, you know, in terms of if kind of, there's definitely been some short-term headwinds, but I think the overall macro picture, you know, it, it really is that renewables are going to continue to be a strong part of investments in this country, going to continue to be a strong part of our generation portfolio going forward, really complementing with natural gas. Uh, that's where we spend a lot of time explaining to people how much you need gas to make renewables work on a 24-7 dispatchable basis for a grid. Uh, they're really going hand in hand together. Uh, if we're not going to build any more nuclear, there's really no other option. So um, th those are some, some, some key issues we always spend time on. But you know, I think when you're looking at where states are going, especially you know, in your Northeast states, West Coast states, from your resource planning, um, you know, short-term blips, but renewables from, from a long-term perspective is where I think you're gonna see more and more of your demand push happening. And in offshore wind as well too, um, those projects are still moving forward. You know, we've got the Vineyard Wind project at some point maybe moving forward and, um, and some, other, some other offshore wind projects happening now. So, uh, we're certainly still see that regulatory push and that interest from the renewable side as well. I was going to connect to the Green Bank, but you know, uh, I've got another question that I want to make sure that I get in before um, we get ready to close. Um, I want to thank you both for sharing so much information today uh, and answering questions that we, we had and, and that we got from our participants and I'm still looking through some of those. And we may have an opportunity to get one more, but I wanted to make sure I asked this. What does the future hold? Are we looking at decoupling? Uh, we talked about diversification. Um, are we looking at risk management, full trade restructuring, or something else? What, what does the future hold? And I think, you know, a lot of it, I think Dean mentioned that, or maybe it was Brighton, that we're going to be okay, right? Um, because of the way the country is structured. Um, but is there something that we need to do more of now to make sure that we're okay? Uh, what is that? What does this sort of timeline look like? Um, what does the future hold? Let's start with Brighton. Yeah, I, one, I, I, I just personally believe that there will be some strategic reorienting in our supply chain and reshoring that will happen in some key critical industries. Um, I think that's I think that that mindset in the American public has changed. It's not easy to do, but I think people get that now. Um, you know, why you, 
everyone can be happy with your Amazon just-in-time delivery for your peanut butter or your spaghetti noodles, the like that you may have. You don't want to do that with energy or with medicine uh, or with things that I think people really know that, hey, we, this, this is a key component of my life. You know, if I don't get my peanut butter or spaghetti, you know, I've, I could always eat the frozen chicken nuggets. My kids love them in the freezer if I'm really hungry. But you don't really have that that option, at least in my house anyway. In my house. Um, and so um, I, I do think people, and from a regulatory standpoint, are going to start looking at this from a more holistic standpoint. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be, you cannot change the fact that 95% of our, of, of our customers are not here in the United States. And so it, there is going to have to be some understanding that we are, we live in an integrated world. We're going to continue to be in an integrated world. That's okay. But in terms of, of kind of where we have our key issues and, and especially from an energy and key critical sectors, I, I do think you're going to see some more strategic shift in this country to, to stockpiling or other preparedness efforts. Thank you, Brian. Dean. Future is always hard to predict, and from an API perspective, you know, we're always reticent to try to offer specific predictions, and we have restrictions on that. But not, maybe not predictions, but even just how you think it needs to go, like what needs to happen. Well, we've hit on some of this. We need trusted trade relationships. Some of like the direction that it actually goes is going to depend on the political whims and how they play out over the next year or so, right? But even before that, and regardless of that, the direction of the tensions with China, you know, we've gone one direction and, and that's gonna to need to be sorted. We're gonna see, you know, do we reach an equilibrium where as developing Asia and emerging markets continue to shoulder the majority of the world's economic growth over coming decades. That, that's an almost indelible fact from International Monetary Fund, World Bank, any, any expectation would be that emerging markets are your source of greatest growth in coming decades. How do you raise all boats, living standards, human economic development, alleviate energy poverty around the world, and make sure, frankly, that the system globally is stable as we're going through a maturation of the baby boom generation, graying workforces, entitlement costs that are ballooning and debt costs that have ballooned in many developed economies now. And now we're trying to pull ourselves by our bootstraps with triage out of a crisis, a genuine health crisis on top of it. So we have real short-term uncertainties. I, I think we should be optimistic that the $9 trillion of stimulus that I mentioned globally by central banks coordinating around the world is likely to do some good. You know, the, I like to use the phrase, $9 trillion can't be wrong. There, there's going to be something that comes of this that helps improve growth, at least directionally, though we may not be able to predict it precisely. And as long as we have enabling policies that start to rebuild the trustfulness of trade, the flow of goods, the economy, trade, human economic development, and energy will go hand in hand, though the exact percentage relationships between these things you know, on the margin may shift a little bit, but I'm hopeful. Thank you. Thank you, Dean. Thank you, Brian. This has been a great conversation. I hope that it was really beneficial for those who attended. I'm going to turn it back over to Paula. Thank you, Tanae. And, and let me join you in saying thank you, Bryden and Dean. And Tanae, thank you so much. This, um, as a, a good friend of mine would say, this webinar has absolutely been an IQ builder. Um, and if you look at some of the chats, there's a resounding agreement, at least amongst my team, that Dr. Foreman was our in we all been economic.